I want to invite you, if you would, uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can quickly scramble and get it. It shouldn't be too far away from you, I imagine. Uh, I shared a few weeks ago that um, I was feeling uh, led uh, by the Lord not to return at this point in time to uh, 1 Samuel. I began in January a new sermon series in 1 Samuel. We, I trust we'll get back there at some point in time. But the Lord laid on my heart the book of Revelation. As we walked into this uh, global crisis with COVID-19, I just felt uh, that this would be a book of, uh, uh, in the Bible that would be, uh, has so much to say to us in, uh, in a t- all the time, but in a time such as this particularly. And so I, I believe that God wants us to, to walk through it. And so we are going to begin uh, doing that this morning. You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8 this morning as we begin. Uh, earlier this week, my family and I, uh, I'm not sure, Tuesday or Wednesday night, we sat down together to watch a movie, and we watched uh, the movie Jumanji Welcome, sorry, uh, uh, Next Level, I think it was called, uh, the sequel to uh, a movie that came out a number of years, three years ago, I think, Jumanji uh, Welcome to the Jungle, which was a remake of a movie that came out in 95. Uh, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, the, the first movie in this uh, latest rendition, uh, tells the story of four suburban kids who uh, get sent to detention in their high school, their high school students, and they are, uh, for their detention, the consequence is they are assigned the unpleasant task of cleaning up the school basement. Uh, In the course of their uh, time there, one of them finds an old video game console, and they decide to give it a try. They plug it in, they each grab a controller, and then suddenly they find themselves being sucked into the video game. They, they, they leave the world that they know and they go into this other world, into the middle of a jungle, and everything's different. Their surroundings are different. There's wild animals. Uh, some of them even get eaten, but it's a video game, so they have multiple lives, so it's not the end of the world. Uh, there, there are enemies who are out to get them, and there's a mission that they've been given. But everything is strange. Everything has changed. It's, it's different and unfamiliar. They find themselves a little disoriented as the movie begins. It's amusing to see, but, but we just watch them as they struggle to get their bearings, to figure out who they are and where they are and what's going on. This morning, as we begin our journey through the book of Revelation, I suspect that many of us can identify with that feeling of disorientation, not, not knowing exactly where we are. Where we, are. Uh, we walk into the, book, the world of, of the book of Revelation, and, and we find ourselves in very strange surroundings, in, in a place that's unfamiliar. It is really a, a quite a unique uh, part of the Scriptures. D.A. Carson uh, shares a story about one of his friends who was involved in campus ministry in a British university and uh, early in the semester was handing out New Testaments to undergrad students. Uh, one of the young men who took it, uh, this, this friend of Carson ran into a couple months later and asked him if he'd read it and uh, how he'd found it. And the student said, I did actually, I read it and it was, uh, I enjoyed it. But it was a little bit repetitious in the beginning, sort of shared the same story over and over and over again. But, but I sure like that science fiction bit at the end. Now the book of Revelation, of course, is not science fiction. Uh, but this student was simply trying to find a category for it. It was unlike anything else he'd read through the New Testament. And, and, and we, likewise, may struggle as we approach the book of Revelation. What are we to do with what we encounter in this book? Thunder and earthquakes, dragons and beasts and trumpets and scrolls and seals and and bowls full of wrath. 
strangeness of the book of Revelation has led many believers to simply avoid it. They, they act as if their Bible really only has 65 books instead of 66 because they feel hopelessly lost and disoriented in this book. My hope and my aim as we begin this journey through the book of Revelation is to help us approach it rightly. Not as some impossible puzzle that we can't possibly grasp, but, but as God's word clearly spoken to us. I hope that as we unpack it, it will become clear that we will not only understand it, but that we will be transformed by it and, and, and moved to worship Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open up to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take, it, take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. I want to, this morning, in the time we have together, I want to, uh, as we dive into this exploration, ask four questions together with you. First, what is this? And we'll spend a significant amount of time uh, answering that question. What, what is this as we come to the book of Revelation? Second, who wrote it and when? Third, what is it about? What's its message? And fourth, uh, how is this relevant to you and to me living today? So question one, what is this? Uh, what is this book? What are we looking at when we open our Bibles to the book of Revelation? Uh, the very first word in this book is the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get apocalypse, which is why I entitled this message simply the apocalypse. Uh, that word serves as the title for this book, the apocalypse. Literally, apocalypsis means unveiling or disclosure or revelation. Uh, think of the pulling back of a curtain or the lifting off of a cover to reveal something, the unveiling, the apocalypse, the, the revelation. The book is an unveiling. It is a disclosure, the pulling back of a curtain, the lifting of a cover, and it is, as we read, the revelation from Jesus or the revelation of Jesus. So I'll come back to that in a moment. Just a, a, a quick note, it's not revelations plural. It's the revelation. 
That's how the book begins. The revelation from Jesus Christ or the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you, the NIV says from, the ESV says of. So which is it? Is it from Jesus or is it of Jesus? Is it about Jesus? The answer, of course, is yes. It's, it's from Jesus, and it's about Jesus. In this book, as, as the curtain is pulled back, as the, the cover is lifted, we hear from Jesus, about Jesus. Uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ is what the text says, which God gave him to show his servants. It is from Jesus, but it is also about Jesus. The revelation is of Jesus, by Jesus, about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Within these pages, as we walk through Revelation, we will see the curtain pulled back, the cover lifted off, so that we see Jesus Christ. So that we see him in all his glory, so that we see him in all his, 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 his majesty, all his power, all his might, so that we see all that Jesus has already done, and so that we see all that he is even now at work doing. This book is about Jesus. Stick with me over the season ahead and you will see Jesus, perhaps as you've never seen Jesus before. Not because here we find any new information about Jesus per se, uh, because we don't. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes this, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there's a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. So St. John uses words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that old truth is freshly perceived. He takes truth that has been eroded to platitude by careless usage and sets it in motion before us in an animated and impassioned dance of ideas. The revelation is about Jesus, and as we walk through the revelation, we will see Jesus anew, not because there's new information about Jesus, but because the revelation will allow us to see him. It will give us a vision of Jesus, a vision that engages our imaginations and ignites a fire in our souls. Uh, Peterson writes this, a few paragraphs into the revelation, the adrenaline starts rushing through the arteries of my faith and I'm on my feet, alive, tingling. It is impossible to read the revelation and not have my imagination aroused. Now, when he speaks of imagination, when we speak of th this book, uh, firing our imagination, we're, we're not talking about pretending. Uh, this isn't what is meant here. It's not imagining things that are not real, but learning to see what is in fact real, even though we cannot see it with our human eyes, with our eyes of flesh. Daryl Johnson writes this, the foundational conviction of this book is that things are not as they seem. Or more exactly, things are not only as they seem. In other words, there's more going on than, than our eyes can perceive. There's more going on than we can see with our physical eyes. This document, this revelation, uh, lifts off the cover. It pulls back the curtains. It unveils what currently remains unseen with our physical eyes so that we can see what is really real. So that we can see more, the more that currently is under, unseen, but is no less real and true even now. 
Whenever we embark on the study of a new book of Revelation, I often speak about genre, the type of literature is. This is, on the one hand, it is apocalypse, it is an unveiling, it is a revelation, but more can be said. Let's look at the type of literature that it is. Uh, we understand intuitively that we, we read different forms of literature in different ways. You read a newspaper differently than you read a novel, differently than you read a grocery list, differently than you read a love letter. And it's important for us as we turn to this book that we understand uh, what it is as far as a piece of literature. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Revelation is a unique combination of three genres, if you will, three types of literature. First, it is a word of prophecy. Look at, with me at verse 3. In verse 3, uh, we read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud this word of prophecy. In the biblical world, prophecy does not mean prediction, but rather declaration. The bulk of biblical prophecy is not, look what is coming, but rather, hear what God says. Thus saith the Lord. This is what God says to us. Now, to be sure, God sometimes has revealed uh, events in the future to a prophet who conveys those then, uh, the, that message of truth about the future to others. But that is not at the very heart. That is not necessarily part of what prophecy is. Prophecy is the declaration of God's word. God's word uh, declared to us that requires a response. Now that is true when it comes to the book of Revelation. Look again at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud this word of prophecy. It is identified as a word of prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. Literally, take to heart uh, means keep, is what, what the original says. Uh, blessed are those who keep it, or blessed are those who obey it. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but the book of Revelation, there is a message, a declaration from God that we are to keep or obey. We are to hear this word and respond appropriately. Uh, secondly, this is not only a word of prophecy, it is also a letter. Look with me at verse 4. There we read, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That is, it, this, this takes the, uh, the normal pattern of a letter throughout the New Testament. We can look back, there are numerous letters throughout the New Testament, and this follows that same pattern. Uh, to John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Uh, there is an author who writes this, who is writing to a specific uh, group of people, specific groups, in fact, churches. He addresses this to seven churches, churches that existed at a specific time in history in a specific place. When we get to chapters 2 and 3 uh, in, in a few weeks, uh, we will meet each of those particular congregations as the author addresses each one, not in some broad general way, but in a very specific way addressing the particularities of each of those congregations, each of those church communities. Churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were seven churches throughout the province of Asia that we know about from the first century. And the author is addressing them in this letter. This is, from start to finish, it is uh, not only a word of prophecy, but it is a letter to specific churches. Now, uh, a real quick aside, why, why just these seven churches? We know that there were other churches 
in Asia. Uh, there were other believers there. Well, the answer, I think, is found in the fact that uh, though uh, it is written to these specific churches, though the author will address particularities of each of those communities, it is not only to those seven churches. Uh, the number seven is, is a symbol that points to a number of completion. And really, uh, this word to these seven churches is a word to all the churches. And in fact, it's a word to all believers. Back in verse 1, uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants uh, what must soon take place. All who commit themselves to Jesus, who all who are his followers, are his servants. This is God's word to them, a word of prophecy and a letter. That is, it is to these seven churches first, but it is to all churches in that day, and indeed to all of God's people. It is a letter for us. Third, this is an apocalypse. It is apocalyptic literature. I've already highlighted the fact that, that Apocalypsis is the title. Revelation is the title of the book. And it speaks of the unveiling, the lifting of a cover, the, the revelation from Jesus, of Jesus to us. But uh, apocalyptic is also a kind of literature, a genre, if you will, that, that flourished from around uh, 200 B.C. to A.D. 100 or a little bit beyond. Uh, it was a Jewish and Christian phenomenon. And it was a, a kind of literature uh, that, that had a number of characteristics that we will recognize as we make our way through uh, the book of Revelation. It purports to be a divine revelation, that is, God revealing something. It, it often features angelic messengers. It makes use of visions, employs a great deal of imagery, uh, stars and mountains and thunders and monsters and dragons, and it employs numbers uh, in all kinds of symbolic ways. Uh, we're going to encounter number seven and ten and 144,000 and three and a half and, and 1,000. So these characteristics are true of, of apocalyptic literature. And there are other apocalyptic texts within Scripture. Uh, we find portions of Daniel or Isaiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel that have apocalyptic uh, literature in them, uh, a form of literature that would reflect those same kinds of characteristics. But there are also other documents that are not in the Bible, uh, other books that are apocalypses as well. Uh, First Enoch, four Ezra, uh, two Baruch. So this is a genre in and of itself. And so, as we come to this book, we need to understand, first of all, that this is uh, the revelation. It is an unveiling. Uh, it is from Jesus, of Jesus. It is about Jesus. And we need to understand that it is a, a declaration from God, a word of prophecy. It is a letter written to churches in a specific place and time, but to the church uh, broadly throughout history and around the world. And it is apocalyptic. That is, there are these strange qualities about it that we need to bear in mind as we seek to understand it. Now, all of that brings us to the second question or the second set of questions that we need to ask, and that is, who wrote this and when? The author of this text simply identifies himself as John, but church tradition uh, very early on identifies this John as none other than one of the, two, one of the sons of Zebedee, uh, a disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve. This is John who we have a gospel uh, that bears his name, the gospel of John. This is John the pastor who, who served churches throughout the province of Asia, we know, through the first century. Which makes great sense, then, of the fact that he is writing to churches in the Roman province of Asia. John, the disciple of Jesus, John knew these churches, and these churches knew John. Eugene Peterson says this, that St. John was a pastor and wrote this apocalypse as a pastor is too little taken into account by his interpreters. We need to understand this was written by, by a pastor to those that he cared for, those that he shepherded. John the pastor writes to men and women, to churches that he knew, 
that, that found themselves in the midst of great difficulty. But John wrote not only to those who were suffering difficulty, but he writes as one who shares in that experience with them. We will see in the text we look at next Sunday that, that John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. He is there, we read, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is, because of his faithfulness as a disciple of Jesus, John has been banished to Patmos. John most likely, I will contend, that, that John wrote the Revelation in the year A.D. 96 during the reign of Domitian, one of the uh, most brutal emperors in Roman history. Persecution against Christians had already begun uh, decades earlier. In 64 uh, A.D., during the reign of Nero, Christians were uh, blamed for a great fire in Rome. They were persecuted uh, in, in some horrific ways. Things got worse in uh, A.D. 67 under Vespasian, and Jerusalem was destroyed a few years later in 70 A.D. But in 92, when Domitian came, uh, became emperor, things grew far worse for the church. Things grew far worse for those who followed Jesus. Domitian, uh, like most tyrants, was a terribly insecure man. He, he, so he ordered all citizens and subjects in the empire to worship him as Curios, as Lord and God. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Everlasting Empire and uh, named himself the Everlasting King. And he expected, he demanded that all his subjects, all uh, citizens, would go to one of the temples built in his honor, that they would take a pinch of incense, throw it on the fire on an altar, and declare, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Curios. Daryl Johnson writes this about John. Oh, sorry, writes this. Domitian did not care what else people believed as long as they did this little act of worship. An act of worship which was the glue that held his empire together. And for most people in the Roman Empire, this was no big deal. They were polytheists. They believed in many gods. No big deal. But for John, this was a big deal. And for John, he could not comply. Honor Caesar, yes. Worship Caesar, no, Johnson writes. Respect Caesar, yes. Declare absolute allegiance to Caesar, no. For John, there was only one Lord, only one God, revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. He alone was Curios. He alone was Lord and God and Savior. And so John, by now an old man, is declared to be a threat to the Roman Empire. He is arrested and banished to the island of Patmos, about 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. John, who shares in the suffering with those he writes to, writes to his brothers and sisters in the churches of Asia who are facing increasing pressure and increasing persecution under Domitian. They are facing great temptation to quit, struggling to believe. The kingdom of God is at hand? Really? Jesus is Lord? It doesn't look like it. And so they're under daily pressure, temptation to turn away, to give up. And into that context, God gives this revelation, this revelation from Jesus to John to, to pass on to his servants, to pass on to believers, to overcome their fears, to eliminate their, their doubts, to fill them with courage in the face of suffering, to remind them that there is more going on than meets the eye. Look behind the curtain. Lift the top off and see. Look what is presently true even now. Even though you can't see it with your physical eyes. Here, look 
and see what is truly true. Question three, what is this about ultimately? What is this, the message of this book? I love, I love uh, two presuppositions that Gerald Johnson shares when, when it comes to uh, teaching on this text. He, he, says, he says, first, I believe what John believes. And then secondly, I don't always know what John believes. I love that. And I will stand with Daryl in, in that. Uh, I believe what John believes, but I'm not always sure what John believes. There will be, as Eugene Peterson puts it, loose ends as we make our way through Revelation. There will be some things that remain unclear, some things that we don't get. But the message of Revelation, uh, what, what is at the heart of this book, is not beyond our reach what we need to grasp as we begin our journey through this book is, is what Robert Mount says, uh, a truth that is really important. He says this, We may assume that its original readers understood its central message without undue difficulty. I don't know if you've thought about that. As you make your way through Revelation and you go, I don't get it. I don't know what this is about. We may assume, Mount says, that its original readers understood its central message without undue difficulty. See, as a letter, as a document that was written first to believers in the first century in the province of Asia, they would have received this and they would have understood the message from God that came through John. So what we need to understand with that in mind is that any interpretation of this book that, that would suppose that the gist of it speaks about the particular details of distant future history and how it will unfold, for example, any interpretation of this that would say, take the locusts of Revelation 9 and see those as Apache helicopters in Desert Storm is wrong-headed. The original readers received this word from God through John, and they understood the message. And so we need to know that Revelation is not some crystal ball that helps us predict and map out the specific particularities of, of future history and how precisely things will unfold. That's not its message. No, Revelation is fundamentally, at its core, it is about Christian discipleship. It's about what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of beastly empires, in the face of, of great suffering. It is about discipleship. It is about following Jesus. Johnson puts it this way. He says, question, who will I worship? Who will it be? The powers of the present age or Jesus Christ? To whom will we give our ultimate allegiance? In the imagery of the book, to the beast with his seductive offer of pleasure and wealth or to the slaughtered lamb with his offer of life? Who will we follow as we make our way through this world? By whose value system will we walk? Babylon the harlots or New Jerusalem the brides? What will shape my lifestyle? The kingdom of God and Jesus Christ or humanity in rebellion against God? The fundamental message, the heart of this book, is about following Jesus. It's about being his disciple in the midst of beastly empires, in the face of temptation to give up, in the face of the temptation to compromise. Though they were facing great persecution, the churches to whom John wrote, and though things were about to get far worse, it was ultimately not the persecution that was their greatest threat. The greatest threat was rather spiritual complacency and compromise. The temptation to, to compromise with Babylon. Johnson says the last book of the Bible 
calls us to radical discipleship, to all-out courageous loyalty to the Lamb in a world that is feverishly worshiping the beast. The last book of the Bible calls us to a radical discipleship, to all-out courageous loyalty to the Lamb in a world that is feverishly worshiping the beast. That's the message. That's the heart of this book. It's about following Jesus. It's about being fully loyal to Jesus, fully committed to Jesus in the midst of a world that is hostile to that aim. The last question I wanted to ask this morning is, how is this relevant for us? And I trust that already you see the relevance. The the message of Revelation, though in many ways very sobering, though in many ways deeply challenging, is a powerful call to us, to all who will read it, to all who have ears to hear what the Spirit says. It is a call to worship Jesus, to be shaped by this vision of who Christ is in His glory, in His majesty, in His power, to to worship God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The curtain will be pulled back. The the cover will be lifted off. God will reveal to us a a vision of of Him in all His glory so that we move towards Him in worship. In verse 5, we read this, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, to Him be glory and power forever and ever Amen. This book pulls us towards God, pulls us towards worshiping Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for us. The one we encounter in this book, the one who has given himself for us so that through faith in him we might become worshipers of the true God revealed in Father, Son, and Spirit that we might be worshipers of Him. Eugene Peterson says this, the intent of the revelation is to put us on our knees before God in worship and to set the salvation-shaping words of God in motion in our lives. This book is a book that as we walk through it, as we see the curtains pulled back, as we see Jesus in a way that we've perhaps never seen Him before, in all his glory and majesty, laying down his life for us, the lamb who was slain, and yet the mighty lion of Judah, that our hearts would be pierced, that we would fall down at his feet in love and in worship. I want to speak to any of you who are with us this morning who do not yet know Jesus, you've never repented and put your faith in him. My hope and my prayer is that you will continue to join us through this season as we walk through this strange and wonderful book of scripture. And that as we do so, your eyes will be open to see Jesus, to see his great love for you, to see his great sacrifice for you, to see him in his glory and power and majesty and might, and that you would come to that place of falling down on your knees and worshiping him. And to those who are already believers, my prayer and my hope is that as we walk through this this word of prophecy, this letter, this apocalypse, that as Jesus lifts back the curtains so that we can see him, that, that we would see him as he truly is. That we would see him as he truly is, even now, even though we can't see with physical eyes, Lord, that, that he would engage our imaginations and we would see him as he truly is, that we would see what is truly true even now 
and that we would be moved to worship, to love, to surrender fully, to surrender anew and live for His glory. His glory alone. Amen.